Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And we appreciate all of your comments, negative and positive. Uh, do send them in. We get to all of them at the end of the podcast. Uh, on this program, we're going to be talking uh, to a chap who is going to explain the art of chemistry, which I hadn't fully understood, and the machine that he's working on that may revolutionize how chemistry is done today. Um, really interesting subject. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Shane, our first story has to do with a new discovery from the J West telescope. Yeah, I feel like everything that this telescope does is exciting because uh, it's at the early stages. Um, and this is a great story. It's just that, like, I think on Twitter, there was talk of a big story. And I was like, oh, my God, what's it going to be? And then it came out and I was like, oh, that's sort of what we expected the telescope to do. So <laughs> what they've done is taken an incredible direct image of an exoplanet. So exoplanets are planets outside of our solar system. We know of the existence of, well, tens of thousands at this stage. We expect that most stars have exoplanets around them. And this is the first direct image of one. And it's a Jupiter-like planet. It's about 10 times heavier than Jupiter. And it's called HIP 65426B. So we call it HIP B. And That's um, my online password for everything. <laughs> That's your pin code, yeah. So they, they've taken this image and they've they've used one of the, the I suppose, the exciting instruments on J-West, which, which is its capacity to look at infrared light. And that's exciting because we're looking at the light directly from the planet itself. So this is what mm. makes it a direct image. Um, so Because before now, we, we had to sort of infer the planet's existence. Now we can actually take a photograph of it. And that's the big deal. Yeah. And this like it's it's really technically challenging. Um, like the, the planet would be 10,000 uh, times dimmer than the star that it goes around. So I read that that's like the equivalent of looking at a firefly next to a lighthouse. So um, you're you're looking at two incredibly different scenarios and you're trying to um, to focus in on the very dim object next to the very bright object. Uh, but they went for one that was going to be easier to start with. This planet has a really hot atmosphere. So its atmosphere, which has lots of dust in it, is, is around 1300 degrees Celsius. So not a nice place to live, according to the lead scientist, Sasha Hinckley at Exeter. And she said <laughs> it's only the beginning. Um, but she's very excited by the fact that we can see clouds of dust in the atmosphere of this planet. So basically, we can observe the weather of exoplanets using J-West. So it, it, it's, it's remarkable that we can do this. It's, it's a good candidate, right? But it, it, either... Stars and planets that are closer, do you know, that we might get better pictures of? Or is this the best possible candidate for a picture of uh, an exoplanet? Well, well, this one is 385 light years away. Um, and I suppose close far away is not necessarily the most important uh, degree of freedom here. It will be brightness to begin with. We need to be able to actually right. see it. But yes, there are closer exoplanets that we could go look at next. They might be a little bit dimmer, but the, the, the very exciting direction will be for us to look at Earth-like planets, you know, our, our obsession with, with things like ourselves. So we'll go and look at rocky planets 
uh, planets that are closer to stars and perhaps see can we look at weather in in their in their atmospheres and can we detect gases in them etc Ruth, our second story has to do with robot therapy. Yes, this is uh, some work that's going to be presented at a robotics conference in Naples over the weekend. And it's research from Cambridge, really testing to see whether robots might be useful, particularly when it comes to children and therapy. And this was a study which took 28 children aged between uh, 10 and 13. uh, And the children were brought in and they they completed first with their their parents a a questionnaire about their their kind of mental state and their well-being. Uh, And then after that, they went into a room with a very sweet little robot called Now. And and if anyone's seen the Pepper robot, they're kind of white and wide-eyed and and quite sweet. And this little robot's only about two feet tall. Um, And and he starts by having a little chat with the kids and doing a fist bump to make them relax. And and then he, the robot asks the children to talk about things like happy and sad memories from the last week, and then runs through some of the same kind of questions um, about how they're feeling, their mood, and, and things that might uh, you know, explain whether they're feeling anxious or not. Um, and the children were able to interact with the robot by touching sensors on its hands and feet. Uh, and, and of course, their parents and the researchers watched from, from a room beside. Um, and what was interesting was the children told the robot more than they had revealed when they were in the room with their parents and a group of adults. So uh, the researchers are quite excited by this because they feel that very kind of non-threatening environment with with something that the children almost see as a peer might be a really good way to get children to talk about things, particularly where they might be anxious, you know, to say, talk about being bullied because they might feel they're telling tales on somebody or they might feel they're going to say something that's going to get them into trouble. Um, Is that a bit sneaky? It is. I did think that when I was reading it, particularly the kids that are kind of 13, you know, up at that upper end, you know, that they're sort of being watched, revealing more than they chose to reveal to their parents. But I'm sure um, this work has gone through the appropriate ethical approvals at Cambridge University. Um, So, Mm. you know, it's coming from a very reputable place. I remember reading about a similar sort of experiment where children were given a telephone and they could um, uh, tell tales on the other class in the school, on the other class members in in a kindergarten. And like some of the stuff that came out was unreal. But, you know, in in Japan, obviously, there's a a huge affinity with robots. And, you know, some people say it's to do with the Shinto um, sort of their lack of religion in, in, in the same way that we might have it in, in Christian countries and, and that they, they often would see this sort of, uh, that, that robots could be similar to sort of pets. I, I, I'm wondering, do you think in, in the sort of West, do we, will we get somewhere to, to this sort of a place where we can, we can see a robot dog and treat it as a pet or, or talk to, you know, robot medics um, as if they were nurses, for example. Yeah, I mean, look, I think what the researchers are saying is this could be additive in some cases. They're not talking about replacing human care. But, you know, we not have yet. seen that. We've seen, well, yeah, yes, but we've seen Wobot, which was kind of an AI enabled uh, online, you know, therapy platform. And, and so, you know, I think there's certainly going to be a place for it. You know, I think it'd be naive that we're, you know, to think that we're not going to see some of this type of technology embedded into care. Um, I think it's, it's how we place it. And, and I think, you know, as you sort of alluded to with the sneakiness piece, what people are 
you know, how people who are using this type of technology understand what they're getting, you know, versus an interaction with a human. So I think a lot of it's going to be about very transparent information about the kind of AI black box. And and that's part of a broader conversation that we have to have as a society about AI. Mm. You know, this is just one example. Um, But certainly I think here it's being done with the idea that this could be part of getting children to open up, you know, when they've potentially been in difficult situations. If they reveal something, who helps them? Well, I think that the idea here is that this is done in association with a human therapist. And again, even the fact that they did a questionnaire beforehand, one presumes that the children were briefed that this was part of an overall session to help them and to talk. So I think that's the key thing, Shay, that, you know, it's it's this combination of using this appropriately to help, but very much under the supervision and guidance of clinical professionals who, who would have all of the codes of practice and, and, and kind of the, the know the next steps to take. I think with young kids, it's probably a little bit safer. But as kids get older, you know, there is a question whether or not um, kids might be playful with a robot thinking it's just a robot and make things up or maybe say what it thinks the robot wants to hear to see what the robot will say back. It's it's an interesting area. There's lots of things you need to think about when, when we start bringing artificial intelligence or robots into, into therapy. Um, our third story, Shane, has to do with marathon runners and compression socks. I didn't know compression socks were a big part of marathon running. Um, I, I didn't either, Kel Surprise. This is from the Journal of Strength <laughs> and Conditioning, which sounds, it's a fantastic name um, of, of a journal. I learned so much doing this program. And yes, it's saying that compression socks might prevent nausea and loose bowels during marathons. So this is something called runner's stomach. I'm really fortunate to say uh, that I've never experienced it. And I let the listeners decide as to why. Um, but it, it can be associated with nausea, cramp, the need to go to the toilet um, when you're when you're doing long distance uh, running. And um, it might be caused, they think, by blood being redirected from the intestines to the leg muscles. And when that blood is is moved, it can lead to a, a breakdown in, in the intestines and that can lead to the nausea and you feeling sick. So what they did was this is just a pilot. They took 46 runners uh, who were all taking part in a marathon in Australia. And they were all told, don't wear the socks in in the run up to this marathon. And then only half of them were asked to wear the socks during the race. And the researchers took blood samples 24 hours before the race. So nobody had worn the socks at this stage. And then shortly after they crossed the finish line, um, they took samples from all 46. So half of them had worn the socks, half of them had not. And they were testing for a protein called intestinal fatty acid binding protein, which is released when the lining of the intestines is damaged. So it's, it's, a, it's a marker of, of, of blood flow redirection. And yeah. um, they found that uh, for the control group, for those who didn't wear the socks, there was a 107% increase in, the, in, the, in this protein compared with 38% for people who were wearing the socks. So it, it is a, a measurable difference. It is a pilot. There's lots of things in this pilot they concede that, um, you know, they would need to do to take it up a level in terms of showing causative effect. It's just a correlation. But they're saying at this stage, maybe there's no harm if you're a long distance runner who does suffer from runner's stomach to wear these compression socks. Thanks, Shane. Our final story, Ruth, has to do with small talk. 
Small talk, yeah. And this is some work done by a group of economists because economists are very interested in how people's personalities inform strategic decisions. And, you know, we, we've seen lots of studies about, you know, how people look, you know, people look at pictures of how other people look and then make determinations about them. But what they say is there's never been a study to determine how small talk informs our our decisions about people. So, so this was a study where they recruited nearly 340 participants and they got everybody to complete a personality in an IQ test. And, and in that personality test, they looked at the big five personality traits, which are openness, agreeableness, extroversion, neuroticism and contentiousness. And then they split the group into two. So half of the group were put in a little cubicle with somebody else and they were asked to have a four minute conversation using a text screen. So they were essentially typing little messages to each other. And um, the other group were just put in a cubicle and, and had no contact w- with anybody. Afterwards, then they they looked back at what the small talk had been between the people. And, and in fact, it was really mundane and banal, as you might expect if you just put in a room with someone. So the most common words were just things like, yep, haha, lol. How are you? This is odd. It was all this kind of very banal stuff. But then after that, they, they asked the, the, the people to, to predict things about the person that they'd been in the cubicle with. And, and what they found was if the participants had had a chance to engage in small talk, they scored much better in predicting what kind of person was in the cubicle with them. Um, they then got them on, they, they then uh, got the, the groups to try and do some games. So, so they gave, they gave them 20 experimental pounds, as they call it. I'm not sure what that looks like. Maybe it's just imagine you have 20 pounds and, and, and they had to do two different things. They had to, to guess how much somebody might contribute to a communal pot and and they would win more money if they got it closer to the other person. And then they also had to decide how much they wanted to cooperate. And again, they found just with that four minutes of engagement, people were much more likely to be able to guess how much the person would put into the pot. And they were also 30%, they they gave 30% more in terms of cooperating with that person. So, So what the researchers are saying is even what seems like this incredibly banal, superficial conversation, the kind of conversation. Only, I mean, this this conversation over text, like not, over they don't text. even see the person. Well, they do see them. They're sitting beside them in a cubicle, but they're okay, typing okay. at them. Um, and, and again, you, you have to wonder, like, what about all those other cues that are there as yeah. well? Um, but but certainly, you know, this idea, you know, that that these banal engagements that we all have every day as we go to the shops, as we pass by someone in an office, is actually telling us something that we're telling them something about our personality. Um, it's pretty amazing. I've never had a banal engagement, as you know, but um, it does seem to me that um, if you're sitting beside someone, you can get there's so many other things. You know, there's the how how they move, what they wear, um, you know, how much they look at you as they're texting and so on. So there does seem to be a huge amount. But to me, like the power of small talk is is really evident when uh, when you are starting a meeting with somebody you don't know, like just being able to to have that initial chat and sort of get a gauge of them, whether it's subconsciously or consciously. Uh, I think you, we do learn so much from those first impressions of people. Yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes to remote working, you know, certainly it's something you're hearing anecdotally, that kind of small talk that doesn't happen when a group of people join a video call versus when people are milling around getting a cup of coffee before a meeting. You know, I think, you know, again and again, we're hearing that those in-person interactions do matter and, and they do. And I think particularly with the cooperation piece, we're saying that when we actually just spend a tiny bit of time 
having an engagement with someone back and forth as opposed to just sitting beside them and not talking to them, that that actually does make a difference, a measurable difference. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland, Shane Bergen from UCD, thanks very much. Now, as my poor family have borne witness to many times, I am terrible at baking. Nothing rises, it's wet in the middle or rock solid. No matter how carefully I follow the recipe, it's a disaster. But if I struggle to make a simple sponge from a Ballymaloo cookbook, how hard then must it be for actual chemists that need absolute precision while dealing with highly toxic and volatile materials in a lab? How can we take the guesswork out of creating pharmaceuticals that we all depend on? Well, Professor Lee Cronin is Regis Chair of Chemistry in the School of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow. He joins me now. I have to say, um, Lee, you're very welcome. I I always thought that this was not a human thing, that chemistry was a very inhuman uh, effort, that all of the chemicals were mixed together by machines and that 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 would have been going for a long time. But when I was reading about your work, I realised that actually there's a huge amount of of, of craftsmanship that goes into creating molecules. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So chemicals, are, most interesting chemicals are made by hand in laboratories by human beings, highly trained artisan uh, chemists like Michelin star chefs. They have, to, they have to know what is the correct solvent to use, how much to use, whether to add salt, literally how much to boil. Uh, going back to the time of alchemy, it's been a lot of kind of feeling with the stuff you're doing and uh, more feeling and less reading, I guess. Wow. So when it comes to something as as important as, for example, a drug that could save lives or cure COVID, for example, take me through the process of of chemistry that that is gone, because you have to obviously identify some sort of target um, in the body, and then you have to somehow engineer a material that will do exactly what you want it to do. How do you make that molecule? Yeah, so assuming you've got a blueprint, so you typically say with COVID-19, you might identify a molecule that might attach itself to the virus in some ways, you've got the shape. From that shape, you draw out, you know, on paper or on a computer, the molecule. Then you've got that drawing of the molecule. It's a challenge to turn that molecule drawing into the moves in the lab. And chemists are really like chess grandmasters. They look at that molecule like it's a move on a chessboard and they plan the moves in the laboratory. How do I cut up this molecule? So what they would do is they take the molecule and in their head, cut it up with a pair of virtual scissors into fragments, into parts. And then they would work out then from those parts, can they buy those parts? And then if they can buy those parts, how do they mix those parts together? So then form the molecule step by step by step. And it's really painstaking because at each part, something could catch fire, something could not work correctly. Um, you know, maybe you're using the wrong solvent. And so it's really like baking a new souffle from scratch every time. And it's just hard to do. God, that must lead to very inexact results. No, I mean, how do we ever get reliable drugs from a pharmaceutical company? Oh, well, once you, so the good news is once you've learned how to make the souffle, you write that down carefully and the intuition that the grandmaster used to get to the position can be copied. And typically when you get to a drug, when you go beyond the discovery and then the exploration, you might find that that particular drug will be made in a factory by machines, right? Less, Less human, more machinery. But the process of really getting those targets and exploring what we call chemical space is very manual. 
and it takes a long time. It typically typically can take many years for pharmaceutical companies to discover new drugs because the one of the bottlenecks is really making new compounds that do what you want. Talk to me about your work with uh, your computer. What what exactly is it? And what problem are you trying to solve? Yeah, so the computer is a robot that basically runs code to make molecules, and uh, computers get aims to do to chemistry what a computation did for mathematics. Now, that seems a bit grand. Well, we can all multiply numbers together in our head. I can do, you know, two, two times two. I might not be able to go to six-digit numbers. In my head, I might have to do it on paper, do it manually, um, and get to get the number. And it's a bit like that with chemistry. There's only so much you can hold in your head and do in the lab by hand. And so the, the idea I had a few years ago was, could I literally... Uh, take remove the labor because multiplying two numbers together is just hard work it's just you know you have to carry all those numbers over and it's you know kind of laborious and there's a formula to it um, and when I realized that chemistry wasn't magic that everyone was using their own little language if I could then kind of make it a little bit more standardized so everyone could tell me the secrets and I could encode them could I build a computer and that's what I did um, I guess about Five or six years ago, originally everyone said it was impossible, chemists were magic, um, and I said, really, are they magic? And I observed them carefully, built robotic hardware, and then built a programming language that started to be able to make drugs. And now in one robot, we can make many different drugs in one system just by adding the chemicals in, like cartridges into a laser printer, loading in the code and pressing go. Which is phenomenal because it, it does take out a huge amount of the legwork that goes into making these complex molecules, as you, as you said. Sometimes um, these chemists would spend a long time just making the building blocks, right? And, and this machine can allow you to, to just order the building blocks and then start with the more complicated and, and, and essentially the more innovative stuff, right? Yes, and that's really where we, it gets exciting because we've literally got, a, it's, a, it's like an autopilot for a chemist. It doesn't replace a chemist. Um, it's just like a cruise control. So the chemist can do the, the labor, the labor saving part means that they can think more, dream up new molecules. And then the really cool thing is, it's a bit like writing computer code in, um, you know, like prototyping. If the code works well, why rewrite it? Just you put it into the product. So if the molecule you can make in your laboratory robot works well, there's potential to just manufacture that scale rather than have to build a big factory each time. Because, you know, every time you need to build a factory, I know in Ireland there's lots of drug, drug manufacturing done, $30 million per factory. Well, if we could take it from $30 million to $30,000, and each factory could make any molecule a bit like a Kindle. So the computer's like a, a, a kind of Kindle for chemistry because before... Kindle, books will go out of press. You'd have to, the physical books, you have to go to the library. You wouldn't be able to find them. And now you've got a PDF. Put it on the Kindle. Any book is available. No book goes out of print. The idea with the computer is no drug will ever go out of print because you'll just be able to make it on the same standard robot that you use to discover it and therefore have access to all the chemicals forever. That's my vision anyway. Well, I mean, it, it's a grand vision, but it, it's, it sounds very exciting. One of the other things that um, is hugely valuable is the uh, ability to test papers that have been published and reproduce results. It's the boring part of science in many ways, replicating results from other findings. But it's really important if you want to make advancements in, in any, any sort of, of, of scientific arena. And, and this using a standardized way of making a certain molecule following the steps of the, the paper that has been published, you can see whether or not you 
come out with the same sort of results and whether or not people can just take that as red. Because, of course, sometimes in science, the community moves on assuming a, a paper is correct or the way something is made is correct yeah. and then finds out sometimes decades later that it wasn't quite right. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's a, been a big problem, not just for chemistry, but any science. And in fact, in cancer biology, that's a big problem just now because, you know, and, and, and all stuff, right? The, when something is discovered for the first time, it's always hard to reproduce. That's the beautiful thing about making new discoveries. But what should happen, there should be a way to then make that more reliable as science turns into technology. And I think by using computation, chemistry will be able to make that more seamless. So the dream you have, I would have is that people would make their new discovery, publish the paper, but associate the paper, they would also pl uh, publish the chemical code rather than a handwritten, or not a handwritten, a kind of hand-typed kind of uh, recipe that you'd have to go in the lab and do manually. And this would be kind of similar to like what you would get um, if you um, used a GitHub for programming, that you would go and collaboratively download the, the program and run it locally. So I think having the ability to run the program to test it would be great. And then chemists right now, rather than just write, put it, publishing it, we could almost make an app store. So rather than publish your work, why not say, oh, I've got a new way to make this drug. I'll put it on the chemical app store. People can download the code and check it and might pay me because it's better than the, the route they have already. So there's all sorts of dreams that we have associated with this to help make chemistry more standard and more accessible and cheaper and more reliable. Do you need buy-in from uh, so-called big pharma in, in a way because, uh, you know, putting free recipes of how to make molecules like remdesivir, for example, uh, on the internet um, and, and making them readily available when there's a, a serious price tag on it, that's not something uh, pharmaceutical companies, many of whom have invested millions in, in developing these drugs, are, are necessarily going to go for. What, what is the application of, of, of that, bearing in mind sort of IP? Well, let's think about this carefully. I think actually in the end, Big Pharma will embrace it because what computation will allow them to do is discover more drugs more quickly. And maybe it might stop the generics. So let's think if the Big Pharma could rely on all the chemists all the world working in their laboratories producing a standard code, it would make it quicker for them to use those molecules because chemical space is so big, it's bigger than outer space. Chemical space is bigger than outer space, which means there are so many molecules to discover, we can never discover them all, ever, impossible. So that means there should be a cure to almost every disease we have. It's just a job of the farmer and the chemist to get there. So I think as long as we give pharmaceutical companies incentives to carry on discovering drugs through the patent process, for the ability to, do, to sell them, the fact that we might be able to sell them and make them cheaper later might actually solve a lot of problems to human suffering. Like, wouldn't it be great if the poorest billion people in the world could get access to all the drugs that are ava were available, you know, available now because of cheap manufacturing? Why would that be such a bad thing for humanity? I think it would be great. I think there would be more chemists to invent more drugs and uh, and humans would be healthier and longer and it wouldn't shrink our economy, it would grow it. So when we went on an Airbnb recently, there was a great excitement from my wife about the Thermomix, which as far as I can see, is it's a blender in a pot. It's not a very complicated thing, but it can do two things. You can heat and blend at the same time. What about the computer? I mean, how many different chemical processes are there in making uh, these molecular building blocks are there? And, and what can the computer do? 
Yeah, that's a brilliant question. Initially, all the chemists, because when I started to say we can do this, they said it's impossible because the chemist does so many different things. And I spent a long time, because I was built, I've been building computers since I was a kid, right? Since about seven or eight years old. So I was always obsessed with building my own machinery. And when I, and I did a PhD in chemistry, did lots of synthesis by hand. And I thought, when I observed the chemists, they only do four things regularly. They do a, the reaction, that is followed by what's called a workup at the end of the reaction. That's followed by a separation to separate out the stuff and purify. So those four unit operations, they have different features, may have different types of reaction, different types of workup. But what I wanted to do is say, well, is there a general purpose reactor, workupper, if that's such a thing, isolator and purify and put them together? And the computer that we've got now in the lab will do about 80% of organic chemistry. Um, which is pretty cool. And so, and of course, we have to modify and add bits, but it's a bit like adding on an extra line of code. It's not getting more and more complicated. We're just understanding what it needs to do. So that's a very long answer for saying, yeah, it can pretty much do all of chemistry in principle and 80% right now in practice. Are you, I mean, is this a business idea that you want to make zillions on? Have you got investment? Is, it, is, it, are you, is this a founder's thing? Or are you hoping to make this computer available to chemists worldwide for free? <laughs> okay, wow, that's such a big question. The reason I designed the computer is I want to crack the origin of life. And I feel the origin of life is a search, a search problem in chemical space. And I wasn't able to hire enough PhD students to work for 100 million years. So I, I needed a technology. When I tried to get funding for that technology in the UK and elsewhere, they said, you're crazy. We're not funding the origin of life. Don't do that. So I figured, what could I actually do to be useful and where chemical search was useful? Um, and I thought drug discovery. So then I got funding. And so for the last 10 years, I've been basically building my research group. And I've been publishing papers and publishing robots, and we're getting better. Uh, but the number of people copying me is not too high because the robots are complicated. Academics like to do their own thing. So what I'm starting to do is to do both a nonprofit and a commercial and an academic at the same time. So it seems a bit crazy. So I'm writing a textbook to explain computation to undergrads so they can learn a program. I'm building robots that academics can get access to at low cost, if not nothing, to just teach themselves and to help educate people. And I've also founded a company called Chemify that is going to basically make server farms of robots to make uh, molecules available to people to accelerate drug discovery and to help pharmaceutical companies and catalyst discovery. So you, the answer to your question is all of them and more. <laughs> I can't go without asking you, how is a chemistry blender, a chemistry thermomix going to solve the question of the origins of life? That's a great. So we've literally made so that we've realized in our search process, when searching for drugs, you turn to have a product, you turn to start with an idea of what you want to get to, but you're still mixing stuff together. And, and you have a kind of Google for chemistry. And I realized if you start with simple molecules and you mix them together, what you're trying to do is look for evidence of biology that can emerge. So you want to find things that look like DNA or replicators or things that are lifelike. And, um, and that's what we're building right now, search engine. In fact, I've just finished building a sensor for the search engine that might find its way on the NASA, one of the NASA probes to the outer solar system to look for life, as well as making life in the lab. And actually, they're very similar, the same problem. So I'm very excited about doing the same, you know, using the, te using the technology to help humanity get new drugs and make, you know, 
uh, uh, people healthier and use the spin-off from that from doing science. I think science and technology and engineering are a virtuous circle that power one another. And I think that that's something that I really love doing. And, I, you know, I love being a technologist. That's not a dirty word for a scientist. I love being a scientist. I love being a philosopher. So they have to all go together. But at the end of the day, I want to get Elon Musk to take a computer to Mars because when he needs some, I don't know, Viagra or he's got a toothache or and the computer can make Viagra, by the way, and it can make lidocaine, uh, which you know, I guess every dentist uses now and then. Um, he's going to have to have one. So just give me a bit more on that. Essentially, what you're doing is, is taking the basic molecules that were around at the, the formation time of living things and just using brute force with this machine to try lots of different combinations and mixing and heating and, and reactions to see, does any of them turn up life or are you being more focused than that? Um, so w w the, the brutal, honest answer to that is we're being pretty brute force, but there is a gravity in biology. I'm like, what does that mean? So my, I've built a theory that says that selection and evolution occurs before biology and that we should start to see that, that when you start to do it by brute force, you won't need to do it all by brute force. You'll start to see the formation of important molecules that will come, go on to be lifelike and that will self-form cells. And so what we're seeing in the laboratory right now is actually evidence of that coalescence. So we start with brute force and we have a little detector that's looking for life, a life detector. And it's when it sees something's more lifelike, it says, oh, carry on doing that. Stop doing the boring stuff. So basically this detector optimizes excitement over boredom. And uh, it seems to be working. I can't believe it. So there was an exciting story in, um, in the news recently where a Google program uh, was able to predict a, a huge amount of potential proteins and took out a huge amount of guesswork for um, biologists in, in trying to imagine what sort of proteins were possible. And of course, that could really help us advance in, in medicine. Is that not possible when you're mixing chemicals together um, as opposed to working with proteins? Uh, yes and no. So the, the, the advance was the latest outcome from AlphaFold, where AlphaFold had been established and then it went and just did all the unknown stuff. AlphaFold is brilliant, but it doesn't do everything. So it, whilst I don't want to comment on that particular advance, all I would say the reason why AlphaFold works is something super interesting that's been happening for 30 years is that biologists would take would basically get proteins get the protein sequence using a chemical technique and then they would get the crystal structure that's the actual structure like shine a special light on it so you could actually see it so the sequence and the light they could connect together using a thing called a neural network now what you're saying is like oh chemistry is really messy do you have a, a the equivalent to a sequence to um, shining a light and and the answer was sadly before computation no but now we have computation we have a code so now the code is like the sequence for making the protein and the light is like the detector you have at the end of the computer so with computation we're showing that we can do this and we actually have a machine learning system like AlphaFold that will tell us what recipes work and this has just started it's kind of like you've got a scoop here because it's not published yet but it's kind of it's pretty obvious event but what will happen later 
is that we need to make sure that we keep training the computer to make sure the outcomes are good. And the same thing with AlphaFold. AlphaFold is only as good as the training it's done. So when so it, it can't do 99% of all proteins in biology. It can do 99% of a particular class of protein. And as soon as the other proteins outside of that, it will fall over. But the nice thing is you keep retraining it. It's like, uh, you know, training, training for a new position in a football team. That's a very poor analogy, I'm sorry. But you know what I mean. Absolutely fascinating work. And and I can see how excited you are about the potential for this technology. Professor Lee Cronin um, from the University of Glasgow, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Obviously, very grand ideas there, um, but also very exciting in a way. And it makes sense. Like, I had no idea chemicals were put together in that way. Aidan McKelvey, producer, joins us to go through your comments from last week. Like, I thought it was a really fascinating discussion. Because um, I just assumed there was all these calculations and everybody knew how to, you know, make certain things. And then just the last, last bit was, you know, trial and error. But it sounds like the entire, you know, complicated molecule is put together by, you know, a sorcery magic and a bit of culinary expertise. Like, I, I was like, what? It just didn't make sense to me because I can, I, you know, chemistry is studied in such a, black and white sort of way do you know what i mean is this blowing up that statement that baking is chemistry and cooking is art because so i don't need to be that specific with my bread because i i happen to know for a fact that if you're not specific with the measurements you get a big blob of crap and not a not some bread yeah i i mean i think um i think it's really weird that some guy has a very specific way of making a molecule that he then goes on to use to make a more complicated molecule. Like, how is that not standardized? Like, it's just weird. But I guess once they figured it out, then he pro- he obviously annotates how he does it and then he gives it off to, to the mass manufacturers. But it just seems really weird that there isn't a, here's the exact measurements and the exact procedure we use a machine to do to get to this first point. So that was fascinating. And it seems, if that's the way, it seems ripe for automation and uh, and artificial intelligence to step in and say, okay, let's let's bring this to an international standard that we can then mass produce. Uh, I thought, was, I mean, while it's a bit niche, it doesn't affect everybody in the world directly. I thought it was a fascinating chat. Right, uh, last week we talked about um, language. We had a special on language because uh, I was moving house essentially to reveal. Um, what goes on behind the scenes uh, and we were talking to Mark Pagel uh, about the evolution of language and how he picked it up and one of our um, texters says interesting topic any background on speech disorders such as DLD uh, which is developmental language disorder apparently it's uh, when a child or adult has difficulty talking or understanding language and it's a, a hidden disability that affects approximately two children in every classroom and affects learning and literacy and friendships and so on. I totally get that, actually, because I remember hearing John Lunigan, who was um, sort of the governor of Mount Choy a number of years back. He gave a talk and he was explaining that in his prison, the number of people behind bars that had reading difficulty reading difficulties or difficulties with um language difficulty at school was 
off the charts. There was an extraordinary number of, of people who had dyslexia and who had just your, your common garden variety learning disabilities. And it really stuck with me, that idea. So I, I, this particular conversation we had was about evolution of language. It didn't really go into that, but um, we should have a look at that, Aidan, because I'd say there's some interesting studies looking at, you know, the effects of learning difficulties and and how we need to address them early on. Probably some interesting long long lasting studies um following populations, that sort of stuff. We were also speaking to Mark Pagel about the sounds that we use and uh Mark said that uh, as humans we only use about seventy sounds and Trevor Laffin says, only seventy sounds? That guy hasn't met my wife. I'm trying to figure out if that is a brag or a complaint. I think that's one of those um <laughs> uh, is it a brag rodney rodney dangerfield style comic quip yeah but <laughs> you should see my wife yeah 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 of. yeah uh, it, i mean it could be yeah i don't know it could be rude or it could be sexist either way tut tut with trevor um we were speaking to daniel oberhouse uh, about listening out for signals as well and alien languages um, and jim uh, says according to the x-files we have gotten the answer to tough questions they're already here. So is that what, was that the the idea of X Files? Is that the aliens were already among us? Yeah, was pretty, pretty was much. A, the the truth idea. is out there, but you the and I yeah, yeah, yeah. don't have it because we're part of the mainstream media. But FBI it's, agents somewhere on TV have it. Yeah, it was a great show, though. I really enjoyed it. Was it was a very um, good show. Yeah, very good show. I'm surprised it hasn't been rebooted. Uh, don't start that now. <laughs> I'm just surprised. I'm not saying I wanted to be rebooted. I know people who would like die rather than have Duchovny and Anderson, um, you know, desecrated by a new series. But I, I think people, uh, I think people might young the young kids might respond to it, particularly now. You know, where there's so much paranoia. I guess maybe they would just think it was a reality show rather than a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, show. it's also probably only a matter of time until it is rebooted. I would say the only reason it hasn't been so far is because. Weirdly, none of those shows that were, you know, like in the 90s, there was a trend for the episodes to be standalone. Yeah. You know, like Star Trek, The X-Files. It's just this episode is its own thing. It's not a, an on-running story. And they don't really do that anymore. Uh, so maybe it's that trend that's keeping it from being rebooted, hopefully. Episodic. <laughs> Episodic, um, that's it. Yeah, and there was the, but there was always this, you know, sort of uh, underlying bigger narrative, wasn't there? Was it the... The smoking man, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, he was. was he was the guy who had all the secrets. Yeah, yeah, he had all. Yeah. The, he looked like the sort of guy who had all the secrets. He was warping his face. Um, yeah. F- <laughs> finally, <laughs> that's that's why our faces are warped. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we have everything. all the secrets. Yeah. Um, uh, and and it, it, oh, Daniel Oberhaus is also saying, uh, you know, these fast radio bursts, we don't really know where they come from. And someone says, I was under the impression they were from pulsars or. or magnetars that's our best guess at the moment yeah that's right we, we do think that's probably but nothing is absolutely certain when it comes to these fast radio bursts i don't think um you know it could be neutron stars or magnetars and they seem like the most likely candidate but it's not it's not in in canon yet is it no and we've unfortunately yeah. moved we have kind of moved away from the idea though that they're alien signals yeah. which is a bit disappointing yeah, it is. I wonder how the world would react if scientists came out and just said, we've got it. 
we've got it and they and they could prove it and it was uncontroversial it was just there are aliens i wonder how everyone would react yeah well i was i was tremendously disappointed <laughs> on thursday when the james uh the jwst telescope was saying they had great they had big news and just like shane i was like big news gotta be aliens has to be aliens yeah and then it was like, I think that's no, bigger we're, than we're big, just doing though. our job. <laughs> You've got better superlatives than big news when it comes to, to to the English language, if it's aliens. I think big news is your cousins are coming to stay the weekend. It's not everything we know about life is completely going to be turned on its head and we have to start all afresh with most major religions. I mean, that's it's bigger than big, I would say. Yeah, so you, 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 if if you see a tweet from NASA saying, Big, big news. There you go. And that's what physicists know, like to do. You know right? what's they happening. Like to use, they like to use like just very plain language things to describe things that are big. Um, yeah, they, they found out by news. way of the very large telescope. So. Yeah, exactly. uh, right. The, that's it from us uh, on this week's programme. Thanks to production team Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunton, Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. Thank you for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday with more in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.